Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Yeah, so hello, my name is James and I'm the director of the Social Change Lab. And uh, I, I basically founded this charity because I spent several years campaigning for groups like Extinction Blind Face in the UK. And I realized there was a, a big kind of lack of information in terms of how to campaign effectively and if what we were doing was actually the best way to achieve change. And kind of, I've been going down this rabbit hole of, yeah, to what extent these tactics work and how can we make them more effective. And that's been my full-time job for the past year or so, yeah. Right, right. Is is there a difference between tactics and strategy, right? Because I've come across this uh, before, where there's sort of particular words <laughs> that are used in regards to uh, organizing. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, the way you can frame it is basically strategy is much more high-level, kind of the like overarching thing that dictates um basically what tactics you do and a tactic is something small maybe something like an individual roadblock or maybe throwing soup at a painting or or whatever you might want to do but the strategy is within that it's like is a strategy that we focus on the public or do we target oil companies or do we target the government so i think it's the much more overarching kind of coherent picture that ties together uh, a range of tactics if if that makes sense totally makes a lot of sense so um, is there sort of a general definition of because this paper is called what does a what makes a protest successful? So is there sort of a general definition uh, of protest and and then I guess what are the sort of bullet points things that make a successful protest? Yeah, I think in terms of how you can define it, um, I think yeah, this is a tricky question. I think protest now encompasses lots of different things, and maybe how is the boiler? down it's some statement or action that basically expresses some kind of political goals or motives and it's usually used to express dissent say like you don't agree with something but often i think people use protests in more creative ways so almost like vision a better future so i think it's not just expressing dissent but it can be kind of trying to create a better future as well and in and it's yeah, usually done in groups obviously it can be done in the, like alone as a single person as well but i think generally it works better in groups and kind of leading on from that is i think from a high level, I think from what our research has kind of discovered so far in terms of what makes some protests or protest movements more successful, it's things like basically yeah, numbers. I think generally groups or like movements that are much larger tend to have better chance of success um, for a variety of reasons that we can touch on. Uh, but I think another one important one is like nonviolence. So uh, there's some really good research done by Erica Chenoweth that basically looks at 300 social movements over the past kind of 100 years and just finds that nonviolent movements are almost twice as likely to succeed in achieving their goals relative to violent movements. And then there's a couple of other things like basic diversity. Like if you're a group or kind of movement is more diverse, it's a much more compelling signal to people that it's not just your normal crusties and hippies who care about an issue. It's actually a wide range of people from all across society. And then maybe the final thing is, um, I think, kind of disruption or having some kind of element that makes it unignorable or because I think there's been many protests that kind of come and go and we don't ever take notice but I think if you can pose some kind of threat or you raise enough attention that people can't can't ignore anymore then I think that's uh, particularly promising yeah it, it was it was enlightening to read that was a uh, around policy change um that it was a bit more of a gray area uh, maybe whether protest is effective policy directly policy change right like it can change Mm. public opinion um but uh and then that can uh, sort of lean towards changing policy but some of the policy sort of uh 
people that uh, was it like civil servants that you interviewed had had said like it was actually um not the usual suspects mm-hmm. uh, which was a key part of part of the persuasion element like if they see uh people in the protest that they're not used to seeing that that would that could have quite a profound effect which basically means now everyone needs to sort of do a a Rene Magritte thing and all turn up in suits and bowler hats, right? Um, yeah. And then uh, yeah. we can change the world. Yeah, I, I think that was a, I think something I really didn't expect to find at all, but actually both the civil servants we spoke to, but some academics who'd done some really cool research, where they actually interviewed over 260 Belgian MPs. And that's like over two-thirds of all Belgian mm-hmm. elected officials. I think it was like amazing how they did this. but And, and they said one of their key findings was yeah, if it's a group that's kind of like unexpected or that doesn't usually protest, that's like particularly compelling. And the example they gave a few times was basically Fridays for Future and school strikers. And often in this case, it was children or like people under the age of 18 who are protesting. And this is a group that doesn't often take to the streets. And when they do, people do look and pay attention. They're like, wow, this must be quite a serious issue. I should actually, whether it's change policy or, or like pay attention or do something about um, the situation. I think, yeah, I think that was the key finding for us. And yeah, so maybe we should all go on a recruitment drive and basically find people who wouldn't go there otherwise and make sure we bring them along. Yeah, I think also the idea that you have to be on in the media because otherwise people mm. don't know about your protest. And one of the ways of getting in the media is being unusual and imaginative. I mean, I've been an activist for many, 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 many years. And I think one of our most successful Uh, protests was we were protesting to try to get midwifery rights in Mm. the Yale New Haven Hospital because they wanted their interns and residents to practice on women and they were horribly insensitive and women wanted midwives. But to have a well-publicized pregnant women sit-in was really effective. And for reproductive rights, we had a bleed-in for women with their period. Mm. That also got media attention. And once when I was um, in a parents group trying to get Save Our Schools, it was called, to get public education, they really didn't listen when we had tens of thousands of people on the lawn. But when we instructed a whole bunch of mothers, and it would be hard, hard to arrest us, came with our toddlers, we gave them ice creams and sticky everything. <laughs> And we went into the uh, governor's, I mean, the mayor's office and the legislative offices and left a huge mess along with the press. And that got recognition because they were shocked. And it would look bad to arrest mothers with little kids. So I think that novelty is huge, like the die-in at the Guggenheim Museum that was against the Sackler family as trustees of that museum because they, you know, run Purdue Pharma and the OxyContin trade, that it was still arresting. Mm. Yeah, I think those are great examples. I think anything like that, whether it's like pregnant mothers or people who are kind of directly impacted by particular injustice or people basically who don't often take the streets, I think, yeah, they're like perfect examples of like creative direct action. That, that Yeah, I think, like, like I said, media has a huge role because if you do a protest and doesn't get media coverage, maybe it's seen by a couple hundred people. Yeah. But if it gets national media coverage, it's seen by thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then it like exponentially gets uh, more impactful. I was interested in definitions of violence because it's a really tricky area. Because you know you do go into various examples where violence, uh, depending on how you define it, which is a question. Um, uh, it was did play an active role uh, in various different I- examples. So yeah, I was just wondering in that uh, what's the definition of violence and in what ways does violence play a negative or positive role in these protest outcomes? And I want to add to that question: Does that include police violence against protesters or just protester violence? Yeah, I think those are great questions and. Um, yeah, I think this is a tricky one because also when 
we kind of say things like generally nonviolence is, is I think more useful. It doesn't mean to say that violence has never worked because I think there's there's loads of examples where actually violent actions have led to good outcomes. But whether it's something I would recommend, I'm not so sure. But yeah, in terms of definitions, I, I think we kind of just uh, err on basically what the kind of like political scientists and academics who do these kind of papers do and we kind of just review their work. But it often uh, includes things like property destruction and rights. And even though when I talk to many activists that they don't see destruction of property as violent. They only think of violence as harm to humans or harm to living beings. So I definitely think there is some kind of, um, I guess, lack of agreement on, on the exact definition of the terms. But I think we kind of tend to classify it as uh, things that cause property destruction and as well as um, violence towards living beings. And yeah, I think you had a great point. Um, and on the basic police violence, I think the problem is that when often when the media portrays activism, yeah, like you said, they'll almost always frame it as the protesters initiated violence and the police were then trying to do their job of trying right. to keep the peace or whatever they say. But in reality, I think it's often not the case or the opposite. And generally the media, it's in their, it's in their interest or for whatever reasons they have, they'll want to portray the protesters as the instigator and the violent group. Whereas in reality, I think that's not always the case. So I think this is some problem, especially obviously with um, more right-wing media. I think in the UK we have um, the Daily Mail, who would often call quite peaceful climate activists, they'll call them eco-mob, eco-vandals, and all these kinds of things, when in reality it's just very peaceful, quite normal um, like citizens. So yeah, I think that there's a huge problem there in terms of how the media portrays activism. Well, I also wondered, because I was an activist in New Haven for many, many years, but New Haven, Connecticut, before I moved to New York, and one of the most effective protests was really the riots. Because after the riots, Yale that ran New Haven didn't even bother with the political establishment. They went right to the black movement because something serious had to be done. And because um, the damage was extensive. And so that it was it was very effective in that the real leaders, not the political people, but the real business leaders and owners had to deal with the black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we almost saw something quite similar um, with, I don't know if you followed the events in Georgia, who had quite big protests, including some riots over the last week. And basically it was in response to um, quite a repressive law. And the government actually kind of backtracked within a few days, said there was too much public from pressure, we can't proceed with this. So I think there's loads of examples of, like you said, these protests, at least kind of like all the violent ones, showcasing the level of commitment and anger by the affected group. And that kind of signals how important this issue is. And then politicians might take this more seriously than maybe a much more tame protest by comparison. Right. Yeah, and like, and yeah. also it's it, it's that thing of disruption uh, is not the same thing as violence, right? And so it's that thing of if you are too well behaved <laughs> and peaceful and not maybe creative enough that you, you, can ha- you can have the numbers, but maybe no one's paying any attention. So by definition... Yeah, yeah, you gave this really good example of an animal rights um, protest that had been that had caused damage to property or something, but because of that, it ended up in the the, the media cycle. And you sort of make the point like this protest well actually wasn't in the end game wasn't successful, but uh, no one would have heard of it. And it didn't, or they wouldn't have even shaped sort of public discussion without having sort of crossed the line, as it were. Yeah, I think that's true with the um, the homosexual rights movement in New York, because when they were polite, nobody was listening. When, when ACT UP started, where people had, you know, dramatic actions, then they got notice. So that sometimes that happens, and sometimes peaceful protests like the yellow vests are so present and so paralytic of the society that they're noticed. But there is a common thread of drama. Mm, Yeah. Business as usual. Yeah, I I think that's definitely, it's like, uh, I think like you alluded to, it's like, it's not that it has to be violent to get attention, it's just like, this kind of like whether it's creative disruption or disruption based on the status quo that alone can 
garner lots of attention. I think Actib is a great example of the, the stuff they did, basically for the for the AIDS movement. I think it was incredible. And yeah, I think they, they did things as far as basically like spraying blood on executives of pharmaceutical companies. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty intense. But in, in a way, they had amazing success. And yeah, I think without that activities, who would have known what would have happened? And then, but then there's like the, I guess, and the downside is a particular more violent side of things. Is I think the example you're talking about, Liam, was a group called Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty, and basically they had really intense repression by the government against activists who took part in this campaign, and some of them faced between I think four and ten years in prison, and that really obviously kind of set back the animal rights movement at least in some ways, because if you if you were seeing like activists in your for your cause going to prison for really long periods of time, you really consider like, is this what I should be doing? Like, what risks am I facing personally? Like, can I, like, can I get involved with this? this is the thing for me. So I think there's these negative consequences of whether it's repression, but also your movement tends to get smaller and less diverse in a way. I think the more violent it is. And this is one of the findings by Erica Cheno is that the violent movements, uh, at least in the ones you studied kind of more globally, tends to be more young men because it's, these are kind of people who are more likely to do political violence, whereas people who have families, young children, they're not going to get involved with violent movements. So I think that's the kind of um, almost balancing act you have to play in terms of what are you trying to optimize for? Is it size? Is it diversity? Is it getting attention? And those are the tricky questions. Yeah, also the borderline between confrontational, like ACT UP, we're here, we're queer, get used to it, and that kind of militancy which is better than violence. It does get across the passion of the people mm. protesting without the physical violation of the law. Yeah. I think Martin Luther King is a great example of that. Again, like the sit-in movement uh, in the 1960s. And they, they were, these were fiercely nonviolent activists. I think they, they had training for almost up to six months before they did the sit-ins just to be able to kind of withstand the, the violence by white people towards them. I think that kind of shows by basically having a really smart, really well-devised campaign, you can be non-violent and still breaking the law, but in a way that it really clearly highlights the morality of your cause and the immorality of your opponent, so to speak. So yeah, I think it, the trick is just finding these good campaigns, and that's the really hard question. And they needed people to record them so the whole world could see the injustice. Because you mentioned the size of a protest, right? And that if you have a diverse... Um, population involved, uh, ethnicity, age, et cetera, et cetera, that more people then see themselves in those protesters and they see themselves as maybe being able to play a part in it, opposed to, I guess, violence turns a whole bunch of people off, like you said, particularly families. So, yeah, what what role or not does size play in any of these protests in terms of either changing public opinion or policy? Mm, yeah, I, I think size is quite an important factor. I think one of the key ways that numbers, well, size is important is in terms of just, um, it's like a, a really good signal to policymakers, to people in government that it kind of shows the breadth and the depth of the people that care about this issue. So obviously elected officials, it's in their best interest to get reelected and, and to do that, they kind of need people to support them be on their side. So if they see a group that, has maybe half of the population kind of in support of their goals and their objectives. And you really think, wow, maybe I should take these guys more seriously. Maybe I should reconsider my stance or at least I'll meet with them and really hear what they have to say. So I, I think it can be a really strong signal to um, basically people in power in terms of how much people care about this. And I think there's other things in terms of a lot of people maybe don't want to take action if they're the only one who's going to do it. I think if you just see 10 people at a protest, you if you go, you're worried that Maybe someone will spot you. You're only one of ten. You don't have, you don't have anywhere to hide. But if there's a kind of big march with tens of thousands of people, and you actually feel inspired, you're like, okay, I, I can go there. I do feel safe. It's the safety numbers that uh, it's, it's provided by these large actions. So I think for all those reasons, the larger you are, can also the more diverse you get. And I think yeah, you had a great point. Is you want to be able to identify with people in the group. If if there's no one in the group that looks like you talks like you or is like you, then maybe you don't want to take part, you don't feel attached. But yeah, I think having this diversity is really important for basically growing your movement. I am thinking of that particularly dramatic protest at the Guggenheim Museum. About 200 artists were all, but they lay down all in black as a die-in and had the uh, media and they got the Sacklers off the trustees. 
that it was so dramatic and atypical in a museum to have 200 people in black lying as if dead on the floor, that it was enough to make a change. Generally, I think the mass of people makes a difference, but not if it's only one protest. It has to be followed up again and again and again, because we protested the Iraq war, and there were over a million people in New York City protesting, and they still continued the Iraq war. Yeah, that that is a a really good point, and it's something similar that I had thought whilst when I finished the document was actually, because, you know, you've got this really useful little table there with uh, color-coded, like, all the different things that might affect successful outcome. And the big ones are, you know, um, size, yeah, one of them's the size of the movement, right? And um, and nonviolence being another one. And then I was like, well, yeah, again, I think it was like a million people um, came to London to protest. It might have been more, I can't remember. Um, but, you know... The, it made me think, was it just not long enough? Because <laughs> length is an issue as well, right? You've got the numbers, it's not violent, and it and it didn't change Jack about sort of foreign policy here in the UK, and obviously it didn't in, in America. Mm-hmm. So is it just that people weren't sort of like, I don't know, some sort of general strike, like we refuse to back this war, and it, like a sort of yellow vest thing, you just do it until you get what you want. No, the Yellow Vest had a lot of repeats. I think one of our big problems, both in the Women's March in New York recently, where there were over a million people, and the Iraq March, is it was a one-off thing. I think, whereas in Vietnam, we got the U.S. out of Vietnam in part because, you know, there were riots and they didn't want an unpopular war while there were riots and race consciousness and the women's movement starting. But also... We had so many demonstrations, whereas the Women's March was a one-off thing, and that Iraq War one was huge, but it didn't keep going as the Iraq War kept going. And I think they have to be repeatedly a large number of people rather than a one-shot deal. What do you think? Well, I think think there are certain, you know, policies, I guess, that, like, politicians are more responsive to in terms of protest i think foreign policy is 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 a one area where it's harder um for i think protests to make as as much of a difference as domestic issues or that's that's some of the impression that i get you know but but even looking at like say the black lives matter protests you know ultimately what we have ended up ended up still getting is like more funding for the police which you know is kind of um a discouraging (laughs) discouraging outcome too you know and and i think anything that that happens that that is having to do with law and order uh like you know policing type of criminal uh justice and and policing is difficult to make traction um and foreign policy is somewhat difficult to make traction i think it's you know a lot easier for protests to make traction um in other areas of domestic policy Mm. yeah i think that's a really good point i I think um i think yeah Libby mentioned that table and the the third kind of factor was actually like socio-political context and basically the issue at hand i think yeah quite I think that's exactly right. It's, it depends so much on the issue being protested. And some things are like, like foreign policy and geopolitics is like many vested interests. In the case of a war, there's like huge kind of like people who stand to, to win in some ways and gain. So it's like, I think it definitely depends so much on the context. And also, yeah, like Harry, you're saying in terms of the, yeah, the length of the campaign, how much pressure is. And maybe if it was that size march for months, for a year, for longer, then maybe things would have changed. But I think, yeah, I think we also have to take into account like the, the, the wider picture of what's the issue, what's happening, and what are the other forces at play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things about ki- about like violence in terms of protests that I often think about is that I think a lot of media framing is that like you know the protesters chose violence, right? 
that's that's often kind of you know the underpinnings of of a lot of how you know when riots and whatnot happen in protests, like you know that this was an act of choice. Versus, I think a lot of times you know when riots and such do happen, they're not planned. It's just. A, a, a very large group of gathering of angry people sometimes just has those outcomes. Yeah, and the police try to induce it. I think in order to discredit a movement, the police try to induce violence and blame the protesters. But I do think that the Black Lives Matter protests have had an effect. There have been a lot of police hired. However, for the first time, the police who kill Black people are accused of murder, and they didn't used to be. They used to just get off. And now there's such force and scrutiny behind the police murders that it's much harder for the people who allowed the police to murder Black people in the past to let them get away with it now. Yeah, it it is interesting that the uh, the length of... A protest uh, and the power that can have because you sort of had this observation in there about from a business perspective sure you can um you can make a brand look bad and people can pull their investments and all that kind of stuff but all that stuff really is quite short term um, you know, it's who's the latest bad guy on Twitter kind of thing. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the, the real power was staying the course, like the actual long-term uh, boycotts actually do affect the bottom line. And that does affect um, business and business decisions. So there is, there is clearly, it's, it is clearly one of the tools that's probably, the most difficult to uh, use, just that sort of sustained long-term protest. Like the grape boycott in the United States, it finally worked to give the farm workers, the farmers workers union recognition and better pay, not that they're well paid, but it took a long time, years. Yeah, I think definitely that's it. It's like that kind of sustained pressure because it's kind of easy to have these called like flash in the pan moments when there's, Something happens, something terrible. There's a huge uprising of kind of like anger and like people come out into the streets. But I think, yeah, you need this kind of sustained pressure to actually um, make things change because I think it's very easy to ignore if, if in this case, politicians know it's the one-off thing. This is it. Like then the anger and the frustration will die down, and then things will go back to normal. I think there's no incentive for anyone to change. But I think if they're like this group or this movement will be consistent thorn on my side and they will get the public on side and I, I will really need to make things change and I think that's much more compelling and another example is uh, Montgomery bus boycotts and civil rights movement again in 1955 that was a, a year-long boycott by the black community of buses and I think they stayed at it I think with 90% of the community took part in this and then after a year finally they managed to get desegregation but like it was a, a year-long kind of battle and fight and so I think yeah we kind of need to be in it for the long haul and not just expect we'll do a few big flashy things and things will change. But it really is like a, almost like a, a mindset or like a, like a commitment to long-term struggle. Right. And also just that that puts you in the best place as well to capitalize on random stuff happening, right? Like if you are in it for the long haul, then if, you know, the sort of political tide suddenly turn or there's some sort of event, you can capitalize on that luck, right? Like if you are, you could be slogging away at some sort of, um, uh, some cause you believe in for a long time and nothing can move for a long time. And then something happens, random. But because you and your sort of fellow uh uh, what's the what's the right term, comrades? Um, you, you can you you can sort of jump uh, at those chances, whereas if there's nothing, um, yeah, then it's a fleeting a fleeting moment, right? Yeah, and I also think it's important that in order to have persistence, the way we did in the anti-war in Vietnam protests, and which there weren't in the anti-war in Iraq 
protests. You need organizations to keep people's spirits up, to keep them engaged and involved, because otherwise the long-term things don't work. You have to sustain people with an organization or organizations to sustain them, to keep doing this, to keep doing it. And um, that was so in the U.S. during the 60s with the civil rights movement and also with the anti-war movement. And the women's movement was sustained for a long time as a movement so that the demonstrations weren't just odd actions. People were sustained from one to the other the long haul. Yeah. Um, Could you explain what the radical flank effect is? Yes, definitely. This this has been a kind of key interest of mine over the past kind of year or so, because I think it's really something that we probably all know about and think about and discuss a bit. But I I think it gets at some important concepts. And basically, it's the idea that a radical tactics or the radical flank of a social movement can actually increase support for the more moderate fits. So and to make this a bit more concrete, it's um, let's say the climate movement, uh, there's Just Up Oil and Insulate Britain, at least in the UK, doing fairly radical direct action, being very disruptive and being very annoying. And then the question is, how does this actually impact the rest of the climate movement? So there's one way it could be negative where everyone goes, oh no, all these climate activists are annoying and disruptive and they don't care about ordinary working people and we, we kind of hate them all and kind of tarnishes the whole movement with this bad image. And then the, the alternative is actually they go, okay, this group is kind of a bit too much for me. It's, it's really disruptive, but I do believe climate action is important and I do support climate action, but just not this group, but I, I do support more moderate groups. Maybe they'll go to people like Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace from the US Sierra Club. And it's basically this, it's a fancy way of saying good cop, bad cop. And I, I think there's been plenty of examples in history, whether it's Malcolm X and Martin Luther King or the suffragettes and the suffragists where there's often these two kind of yeah groups or fa- factions within the movement the radicals and the kind of moderates and obviously it's a bit simplistic but I think yeah I think it's a really important way of like show that the different groups all have their role to play in social change and it's not like one's bad or one's good they're often working together to kind of synergistically to help the issue progress so yeah I think it's a useful concept it is And the long haul thing, I think, is very important because otherwise it isn't sustained. And these one-shot things, I think of the difference between the 1930s and today when evictions were happening all over. But there was a very strong socialist and communist party in the United States before and during World War II. And they moved people's belongings back in their houses and they were there. And because it was a national movement and the anti-war movement against Vietnam, the war in Vietnam was a national movement with chapters in all the different cities, whereas the Iraq thing was a one-off march and it didn't last, that you somehow have to keep sustaining people for the long haul if you want basic changes rather than one-shot deals. Yeah, and and those changes, really what we're talking about is that those in power <laughs> um, change policy to reflect perhaps what these protesters slash the public in general would like. And uh, there was some interesting stuff in there about the sort of the optics, right? Like the, the policymakers, because I'd said at the beginning, like it was sort of a bit... Um, unclear necessarily if the ways in which protest and policy uh, interact with each other, right? Like there was this observation about that that policy could be changed through the perception of a large protest, even if actually the general public weren't actually feeling xyz that the protesters were am i remembering that right or am i sort of confusing it yeah well i think that, that could be a factor because yeah i guess even you do have like well yeah because public opinion is a driver of policy but sadly it's not the most important thing politicians kind of often listen to other elite stakeholders so yeah i, I think that there are cases where even like yeah it was almost like more important to signal that you're a big group even if you're not necessarily like the biggest group and then that could actually help you 
progress. But I think on the policy thing as well, there's this tricky problem where um, politicians will basically never say they made a new policy as a result of this kind of social movement or protest group because that will just kind of make almost uh, make an open door for everyone else to take quite radical actions. And it kind of makes them seem, I don't know, maybe a le- less good political operator. So I think often they'll say, oh, no, I came to this realization of my own accord. I'm just doing this. It's good for the people. But in reality, it was these kind of grassroots movements mm-hmm. that were driving the change, but they just don't get the credit for it. Mm-hmm. That's really true. The huge continuous marches for abor- abortion rights in the United States before they were passed in 1973, there were about 10 years of huge demonstrations. And that mattered because they saw this massive persistent group representing half the population. Now, of course, they don't seem to see that, but there hasn't been the kind of protest mounted that there was then. Mm. Yeah, it it is interesting, this idea of um, policy being affected, but like you say, by elite stakeholders. And clearly part of the recipe of changing public opinion or policy is that your diversity in your protest movement has to include those elite stakeholders, which can probably be an uncomfortable union for depending on the cause, right? Because uh, there's all kinds of um, issues. Not that I know enough about it, but I understand that there's a friction between social movement organizations and philanthropy. Um, because on one hand, everyone needs money <laughs> for, for to, to live and to do things. But on the other hand, you know, philanthropists aren't politically neutral, right? That they have uh, their own... Um, uh, agendas, if you like. And so social movements that do get funded, they still have to sort of run around competing for the money just like everyone else does. And I can see there being some, um, yeah, like I said, maybe some uncomfortable unions, but they just, the, the you know, the ends justify the means kind of stuff. But I, I I don't know actually if this puts you in a complicated situation to talk about philanthropy because I don't know if you guys have funded through philanthropy stuff or, but I don't know. Yeah, if you have any sort of comments about uh, that sort mm. of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that is one of the, yeah, the difficult things is like a lot of these social movements, like they do require money, people get paid uh, tiny amounts, but it's still something so they can live and, Obviously, organizing big kind of campaigns requires funding as well. So, yeah, often it is funded by a really, really small number of philanthropists. And I, I mean, like, literally, there's like a handful of these people that I know kind of per issue. So maybe like a few for the client movement, a few for uh, animal rights. And, yeah, I guess in a way, like you said, it's there is no alternative, I think, because um, often who, who else going to fund this it's never going to be state funded the government's not going to fund anything that challenges its own kind of power structure so kind of by default it has to come by people and often the people who have the most money to give um are generally kind of philanthropists but yeah so i guess it's like um in a way maybe like an unholy union but generally these funders that do fund more grassroots activism it's people who've either kind of inherited this wealth and want to do the best they can like possibly imagine with it or it's people who kind of I don't know, I feel like this is their contribution to society in terms of, yes, they may have a job that some people consider unethical, unethical, but if they don't fund these groups, no one else will. So should they keep going? Um, so, yeah, I think it is a really tricky problem and, yeah, definitely not been solved yet. Yeah, I don't think it has been solved because if you have big foundations like the Ford Foundation, they can invest in things that actually reach their ends. I think of the difference between the community schools strikes in New York, where the Ford Foundation financed community groups, but they financed them basically against the teachers union. And so that they kind of disrupted class unity. Whereas in Chicago, they, the teachers union banded together 
with the parents and in the nurses strike in um, New York, they banded together with patients and their families that they couldn't serve properly. And it was a union thing. It wasn't a foundation that's enormously rich with its own class agenda. So it's very tricky to have philanthropists with their own huge monies, the donors with and their class agenda that fund things rather than unions or grassroots groups. You know, that, that's a tricky one. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it lays unanswered because, again, it's like in the same way that the government isn't going to fund things that <laughs> sort of undermine them. Um, you know, a philanthropist isn't going to really fund stuff that undermines capitalism. Um, so it's it's almost like if you're going to play the game, then it is about uh, it is about uh, changing policy, one policy at a time, right? It's not like ah, revolution, tear the whole system down. Like the ph- philanthropist is never going to fund that. <laughs> um, but who knows? It's a weird world. Sometimes they might, although it would be very unexpected and never going to fund the kind of united class actions that might threaten their class position. And so that, you know, that's very iffy and a difficult question because who, you know, in the crude words of, uh, I guess it was Wilbur Mills, one of, Reagan's appointees that the Pope had made some declaration about birth control and he said, no, play it a game, no, make it a rules, right? Because he was being crude. But if you, your game is such that you have that money because, you know, you've acquired it and you want to hold on to that power of being a philanthropist, it's very different from if you're trying to make a mass allowance to challenge that power. And that is tricky in the world of activism where you're going to get your money. And of course, there's exceptions. Engels, Friedrich Engels subsidized Karl Marx writing capital, even though he owned a factory. But he was an exceptional factory owner at the time. That's a good point. Yeah, I also think there's just a sort of pragmatic nature, however, you know, defeated that might sound to <laughs> the, you know, the revolutionary impulse. There's a pragmatic nature about this kind of stuff, right? And I think the report has it as well. You're just trying to lay out like, here's what we've looked at and here's what we think works. And it's, you know, it ultimately leads to outcomes that are socially progressive or better for people in in general um uh so i think it's a it's a win but um yeah it's like you just have to um choose your boss i guess (laughs) Mm. (laughs) um yeah i I think on the philanthropy thing i guess it's like um because the alternative if you're like a like a grassroots group and someone wants to fund you it's like if you don't take their money, it's it's like how is that good for anyone? It's almost better you take because you think okay, we actually need it a lot. We can do something good with it. But if they keep it, it's like why do rich people want to keep all, like, even more of their wealth? What are they going to do with it? So I think it's like you're right. It's somewhat pragmatic. It's like if I don't take it, how is this actually any good for the world? And there's there's also the bit of the, um, yes, definitely the people who kind of are these philanthropists and do give money do have. A bunch of power but i guess in a way i'd, I'd rather them, them give than not give because there's even more i don't know how many billionaires that don't give anything to charity like give like minuscule amounts so uh, so i think even though these people are in definitely like positions of uh kind of like unnecessary power or like un, sometimes unearned power I'm, I'm so happy they're giving rather than not giving so there's also that as well great point right i mean people are you know a lot of philanthropy is is to a certain degree like wealth and tax management for a lot of these people not to say that like you know giving the money away ends up like helping in some regards but i think for any organization that's accepting money from i guess you know various corrupting sources you have to at some point be willing to lose the money 
in 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 order to be like you know fully um successful of oftentimes the initial intent right have you got examples um well no i i mean it's one of those things that's one of the major issues with the nonprofit industry right you know is that ultimately like you know you build up this infrastructure where you where solving the problem is no longer the um, goal, right? You you want to quote unquote manage the problem, but you don't really want to solve a serious problem because that problem existing is your career. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. So so that those those are kind of like the trap traps. I think that you know. Um, a lot of these these issues kind of fall into, you know, right? Is that ultimately, like, you know, if you are getting into activism, you really need to solve the problem rather than manage the problem. And, and how much the funding, you know, is responsible for that shift from solve to manage. And James, Penny, for your thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, yeah definitely like, on the more activisty side, I, I definitely do agree that, that their approach is much more we can end it. But I guess maybe I think it depends a lot on the issue. But at least the people I know who work in the charity sector, like for example, in climate charities, they, they'd be very happy to be out of a job if climate change will, will solve tomorrow. But sad, sadly, it's not going to be like that. So I think it probably depends a lot on the individual organization. But definitely, there is some incentives where charities just yeah, like any institution. It wants to preserve its own interests. It wants to grow. It wants that suck up more money and yada, yada, yada. And there is a huge problem. I think with most charities and that, it's not doing probably as good as uh, they could be. But yeah, I think that is, it is a tough one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, Harry. Go ahead. I was just thinking that kind of also the noblesse oblige idea of charity, I give to you poor wretches, is a very different thing from giving because you're part of the struggle you know that um, one thing the movement, the other is giving to the desperate poor who you would like to keep desperately poor right yeah but uh, I still feel like there's uh, all those things that both Iko and Eric you both said uh, observations that obviously have uh, played out play out today but there's still a sort of pragmatic thing of mm. of just making life better in the moment. <laughs> Even if it's yeah. a small victory, it's still a small victory. And it's like, right, some, sometimes right. I, I wonder with some of this stuff, like, you know, it's the difference between making a film and being a film critic, right? It's like, you know, they're entirely different experiences. And um, uh, if you make some sort of progressive social change in a fucked up system, then that's a win. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it depends on, you know, what changes are being made. And, and that's kind of a, a, an important thing about a lot of protests. I know the Guggenheim and the Sackler protest was mentioned. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And the reason why I hated it is because I knew what was going to happen, which is that, you know, misidentifying the source of the problem. We don't have an opioid crisis because of the Sacklers and Oxycontin. That's actually a mistaken idea. We have an opioid crisis because drugs tend to come in cycles. You know, we had a huge heroin crisis in the 90s. Um, people aren't necessarily dying of prescription medication. That's probably the safest opioids you're ever going to get is one from the pharmacy. People are dying of poison supply in the streets, right? People like cutting off pain patients, making pain man, because that's the outcome of now this, you know, quote unquote, war on opioids is that like people who have legitimate need for medication are the ones that are being thrown under the bus. Right. Well, this is actually something that was, you know, in the report as well, which was this, in in how you protest, you might have a short-term victory in terms of getting press attention, but long-term you damage the project, 
right? Which was, I think, what we were coming back to at the beginning, which is the difference between tactics and strategy. You might have a killer tactic uh, that gets attention, but then you... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think... Right. Well, I, I mean, I think the people that were protesting do not understand what addiction is and what they're really protesting. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. As you know, those. I know some of those people. And what I think was the point was that people whose fake research and bizarre avalanche of marketing has some towns had millions of prescriptions when there were a couple of hundred people in the town that they were creating an addicted population. Not that they're in charge of all addiction in the United States where people want to make the world seem better because it sucks for them and America's in decline. And so, you know, I understand that, but they were talking about rewarding the billionaires that falsified information and deliberately hooked people for profit and then started a whole empire of sales to continue to hook people for profit. So that was... Well, but that's the whole point is that, like, you know, people don't necessarily get hooked on substances due to the substance, right? That's the most biggest misconception about, you know, I don't want to derail the 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 episode discussing sorry it's just i think i think the thing is right that that example reveals something about intent and consequences right which is a sort of thing that uh, something that keep, keeps uh reoccurring is that you may have good intentions but the consequences uh for other people can be terrible and and when it comes to protest, there is that element of having to sort of sit down and think about this stuff. And sometimes you can't know what your actions are going to lead to because we live in a complex system and you might think you're righteous and right on, but it might lead to, like you said, this, you know, we recently did this episode about opioids and, and the horror show that... Uh, that's happening over in the States and may well soon be coming over here in terms of, you know, pain management, um, being denied medication you need. It's yeah, it's all terrifying, but, um, I, I just wanted to, cause I'm, I know I'm aware that we're coming up to the hour. Um, I had one sort of question and I also just also, the other question was if you think we've left anything out. Um, but just, just so that I've asked it, there was a bit in that report, where it talks about systems and structures are more important than the internal dynamics, um, the sort of human uh, to human contact, which is interesting, right? Because say on this podcast, it requires that because we're only a small group of people that we all get along, right? That there aren't, you know, any overly formal systems or structures. So when you have these bigger um, organizations or protest movements or whatever, has your experience, James, been that, that systems and structures are more important in terms of getting things done than actually if you get on with people? Mm, well, I definitely think it's both. And I think they kind of support each other like a mutually beneficial way. But I think in that point, it's, I think getting like being on good terms with everyone is good and fine when you're small. But for example, when Extinction Rebellion in the UK grew from basically being like 10 good friends to being almost 10,000 people across the country all, all wanting to take part and do something and take action, then it's like, well, you can't have personal relationships with all those people. And then how do you make decisions? How do you get everyone's input? How do you decide who does what? And then all these tricky things start to emerge. And basically, it's like, how do you deal with this? And I think, yeah, there was definitely some lessons to be learned there in terms of how do you manage that growth? And how do you, yeah, like how do you ensure you're kind of democratic and participatory as you scale because i think that is a huge challenge for really fast growing and kind of more democratic uh, or like horizontal social movements and yeah i think about the adequate kind of structures and like norms and kind of like rules and governance it's really hard to keep up momentum and basically keep things go going well because yeah there's loads of conflicts that happen and how do you resolve conflicts how do you decide who leaves a group like when should someone leave a group and yeah it becomes this incredibly um 
quite like drama heavy or this kind of a conflict heavy space and if obviously if people don't want to deal with us they leave and then you kind of put off lots of people who would otherwise join but if you're not actually getting anything done then people kind of tend to flake away so yeah it, it's definitely a huge problem in terms of how do social movements organize themselves mm. and accountability is very important in that because i i know from the women's movement we didn't want to have leaders but of course you have leaders you have de facto leaders if not de jure leaders and then there has to be a built-in accountability yeah that came up in the report as well wasn't it the the importance of leaders doesn't necessarily mean like your <laughs> dick swinging like power trip <laughs> but just that there you know that there are figureheads right yeah exactly i think yeah harry on your point from the feminist movement i think there was a great author called joe freeman who called it the, the tyranny of structurelessness where you, you may say you're horizontal but and like there's no leaders, but there's always some leaders. And if it's not explicit, that means it's implicit. And there's like there's other forms of social power that mean some people take um, kind of control or leadership and others don't. So I think yeah, having that explicit, I think, is extremely important because only when it's explicit, you can actually kind of question it a bit more and want it to change it and talk about it in a really useful way. But yeah, I think definitely leadership is a really key bit because yeah, essentially you're trying to, I guess, inspire people and maybe manage like tens of thousands of volunteers so you need you do need some people to um kind of take leadership in some roles people take leadership in other roles it's all about basically delegating who does what yes no i wanted in vis-a-vis -vis that i wanted to ask you what you thought of people who are symbolic and therefore galvanized because they symbolize like greta thunberg or malala how do you see their role yeah, I think it's a great question. Yeah, I think they definitely play a hugely important role because I think mean, yeah, Greta Thunberg has been so influential in the climate movement in terms of being a really amazing kind of spokesperson. I think she's probably one of the people I know who could go to conferences like Davos and the World Economic Forum and tell it really straight to people that basically they're kind of corrupt billionaires and they're not doing enough. And I think that can serve some kind of like sometimes relatable, sometimes not, can be just basically galvanizing people. Like this person is in many ways kind of ordinary. It's like me, in this case, it's a, it's, a, it's a young woman, but she's doing incredible things. And if she can do it, then I should also be doing it. So I think, yeah, these kind of figureheads who are relatable and kind of have this personal touch, I think is, yeah, super important. I do too. And I wanted to just add, because it's not all in your head, that there is also a psychological transformation when you're not alone anymore, when you're part of something that you believe in that's positive and that you affirm, like saving the planet, let's say, or even a strike where you know you will be better off, that there's something transformative that takes people out of their isolated loneliness into a sense of cohesion and purpose in their lives which is also a very important part of any kind of movement. You know, I, uh, yeah, sorry, James. I don't know if you wanted to comment on that before I added something. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, I, I definitely agree, Harry, in terms of, yeah, like the activist communities I've been involved with are some of them. I've met the most like dedicated, passionate and inspiring people and the bonds you perform are really quite incredible. I think that's what keeps people involved long term is having the sense of meaning and like social bonding and connection to people who also feel really strongly about an issue and willing to go out and make it happen. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's a great place to end potentially. Um, just as a, because <laughs> it's positive, but <laughs> no, I just wanted to add in some, uh, um, something to scramble the egg, so to speak, which is that oftentimes in conversations we've had in this podcast and guests and all that kind of stuff, there has been a sort of direction of travel, which is like, hey, it, it can be good, it can be beneficial to you as an individual, it can be beneficial to your community or society to join up um, with groups or unions or all that kind of stuff. Um, however, I think Equa has made this point in the past as well, like if you're in a place where you're actually not particularly stable, um, actually trying to join a group or a union might not actually be great, right? Because you could go there hoping for some sort of solidarity or, or some feeling of um, purpose or connection. But, you know, there's 
if there's systems in play and everyone's got their role to play and all that kind of stuff, uh, it might A, be a cold experience. It B, it might be sort of alienating in another way because um, you thought you were going to get connection. You know, and and uh, yeah, if someone on Discord had said that they joined the DSA, but in the end they ended up feeling like it was just unpaid labor, um, which is kind of ironic, right? Um, so yeah, I, James, I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts or experience with that um, or reflections. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely right. I think activist spaces can be, in many ways, extremely intense. And yeah, kind of, you feel like you should take on more and more responsibility and you want to do more and more stuff. So I think definitely even either knowing whether you should engage or not or knowing when to kind of disengage is really important for, yeah, just your mental uh, mental health and basically not, I think burnout is extremely common uh, within many activist groups. So it's like knowing your own limits and if you don't feel like it's right for you in the short or long term to engage and that's the that's the right thing to do so yeah i think that's a really common thing but obviously only you can make that call whether it's the right thing or not massive thank you as always to our vip patrons rebecca johns bruce rogers vaughan alexander lashley sheena belmas seamus o'connell alex placito alexandra mccormick wig shaker elizabeth mckechnie and sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.